But if you would turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. As I wrote to you earlier uh, this week, uh, this is one of those passages that I probably wouldn't choose to preach on, but it's next in the order, and mistakenly I forgot to assign it to someone else. Um, so the, uh, so we're going to dive in. It, it's uh, a more controversial one, um, but I think it is... Uh, quite applicable to the world in which we live. So 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 12 through 20, and this is the word of God. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you whom you have from God? You are not your own for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. The word of the Lord. You know, we say that, thanks be to God, often. I'm not sure a lot of people are actually thankful for this particular passage. So, let's become thankful for it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is your word. And as always, we need it. We need to be reminded of what makes the greatness of the gospel, the power of the cross, the glory of Christ. We need to know the sufficiency of your word for all the problems of our lives. We need to know... That whatever we struggle with, immorality, doubt, unbelief, that the answer to those issues are found in Christ. Thank you that 1 Corinthians is a love letter to some pretty unlovely people, pointing them and us to our Redeemer. We need the redemption he brings, so bring us to the cross, bring us to repentance, soften our hard hearts, have mercy on us, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, help us see Jesus. In his name we pray, amen. Amen. I was one of those guys in college who spent way too much time watching Monty Python and the Holy Grail with my friends. I am not recommending it. It's a film that's funnier to quote than to actually watch. And knowing that most of the insults tossed around in the movie actually come from Martin Luther makes it okay for me to reference it on this Reformation Sunday. (laughs) Anyway, one of my favorite scenes is the one where King Arthur and his men come upon the dreaded lair of an evil creature that destroys all who approach it. And the knights with him are getting terrified as they approach this evil creature. 
But then they see it, and it turns out to be a fluffy white bunny. And they all laugh it off. And there's lots of really dumb dialogue at this point. But it's easily summarized as, seriously, it's just a rabbit. But when they go to get the rabbit, the fluffy white bunny quickly and somewhat comically kills a few of them in close combat. (laughs) And so they totally freak out and are left with only one option, run away, run away. And that's the line that's fun to quote. It's supposed to be a harmless situation. It couldn't possibly do any real damage. But the results end up destroying two people. And that's my metaphor for how people approach the topic of human sexuality these days. They treat it like it's just a fluffy white bunny. It's supposed to be a harmless situation. It couldn't possibly do any real damage. But the results often end up destroying two people. Welcome to the world of sexual immorality. As we approach this text this morning, we start by realizing the Apostle Paul doesn't offer the Corinthians a three-step plan for dealing with sexual temptation. There's no secret strategies, just this. Run away, run away. Sexual sin might seem harmless at first glance, but it often leads to real damage and has the potential to destroy It's one of the sins that ends up hurting you personally, not just the other person. And so Paul says, don't try to fight it. Uh, Don't try to outthink it. Just hit the road. So why is this issue, why is this sin so dangerous? Paul gives us several reasons. So let's see what they are. text today begins with the problem of excusing sin. The problem of excusing sin. Sin. Starting at verse 12, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. And, and here he's, he's actually giving three quotes with a response. So the first quote is, all things are lawful for me. The response is, but not all things are helpful. Second quote, all things are lawful for me. Response, but I will not be dominated by anything. Third quote, food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. Response and God will destroy both one and the other. So, if you remember where Paul has been so far in 1 Corinthians, he's been talking about the believer's pride, how that led to really deep division and factionalism dividing the congregation at Corinth. And then he spoke about one very specific case of scandalous immorality and how that ought to have led to loving church discipline. Last week, Reverend Wong led us through the first part of this chapter where the believers were suing one another and bringing the gospel into question. They had forgotten how, having been brought into union with Christ by faith, they had a new identity that should change their behavior inside and out, top to bottom. We have the same issue again today. The Corinthians have forgotten the importance of their union with Christ So they hadn't changed how they were living. And yet they're trying to now rationalize it. And so we find ourselves returning to the problem of sexual immorality, which continued to plague the Christians at Corinth. Members of the church were visiting prostitutes in the pagan temples. Now, it's part of the religion of this pagan city to visit the temple of Aphrodite 
and engaged in sexual immorality with temple prostitutes. But it's shocking to discover that members of the church were engaged in this behavior, no matter how common it was in the culture. And if you look at verses 12 and 13 for a moment, you'll see their misbehavior has theological and philosophical foundations in their way of thinking. Paul quotes some slogans, too, that were in use in the church to justify their sin. They said, all things are lawful for me. Well, it sounds almost Pauline. Sounds like something the Apostle Paul might say. After all, he's insisted the ceremonial commandments of the Jewish law no longer apply, shouldn't bind the consciences of the Gentile Christians. But the Corinthians are distorting Paul's words to mean, essentially, now that they follow Jesus, nothing's off limits. Now that they've been forgiving, nothing's out of bounds. All things, including, it seems, sex with prostitutes, were lawful for them. But Paul points out in verse 12 that not everything is helpful. And perhaps maybe it can even be enslaving. All things are lawful for me, they said. But Paul responds, but not all things are helpful. And then again, all things are lawful for me. And Paul responds, but I will not be dominated, some versions have, or enslaved. By anything. This claim that everything is lawful, that I'm free to live however I want, however I please, completely falls apart when the consequences come home to roost. Their sexual immorality, it turns out, was neither helpful nor freeing at all. It was enslaving. And secondly, they have a proverb they used. You see that in verse 13. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. It's to say hunger is a bodily appetite, and so when you're hungry, eat. In the same way, they view sex as merely a bodily appetite, really of no importance or significant meaning, so when the appetite is aroused, go have sex. It just doesn't matter. That's their thinking, and that was also common in the culture of their day. Much of ancient Greek philosophy conceived of the body as a kind of prison where the soul is held captive. And so they minimize the significance of the body. And that's the Corinthians' problem. Because they were saying, if the body doesn't matter, and what really only matters is the interior spiritual life, you know, if, if it, the body doesn't matter, then our physical appetites could not be less important. What matters is the inside, the spiritual life. So the appetites, needs of the flesh, indifferent, irrelevant, who cares? Indulge by all means. When you're hungry, eat. If your sexual appetite's awakened, indulge. It just doesn't matter. The fact that much of our culture today still holds this opinion, including many Christians, really struck home with me recently. One of my favorite TV shows is Longmire. It's about Sheriff Walt Longmire. And he serves in rural Wyoming. And he has this sort of no-nonsense, common-sense demeanor about him. It's a modern-day Western, for lack of a better description. Now, the TV show has removed some of the deeper issues in his life, which primarily stem from the tragic death of his wife. But in the books, and I've now read all 16 of them, 
there's this major personal conflict between his loyalty to his deceased wife and his relationship with other women. And in one case, he sleeps with one of these women, and afterwards, he's emotionally torn apart. He just becomes a wreck. This is this big, huge, sort of tough Western sheriff, and he's falling apart. But in the story, the woman, she sees him falling apart, and he's struggling, and he's emotional. She's like, well, there's nothing wrong. There's nothing to be worried about, she says. It's just sex. It just doesn't matter. But deep down, Walt Longmire is a man of honor, and he knows that it does matter. Now, that's a fictional picture of this issue. The world is telling us it just doesn't matter. But if you're a follower of Christ, beyond a shadow of a doubt, it really does matter. And not just to you, but also to the God who made you. And by bringing God into the equation, you're forced to face the next problem, which is the problem of denying truth. The problem of denying truth, starting with verse 13, second half of 13. The Apostle Paul is going to deal with their mistaking views by offering five truths about the Christian view of the body that should change their whole outlook on human sexuality. Puritan theologian William Perkins famously said, theology is the science of living blessedly forever. Theology is the science of living blessedly forever. That is to say that doctrine, theology, biblical truth is essentially practical and it should lead us to a holy life. And in the passage before us, the apostle is bringing a master class in how theology shapes life. He touches on five foundational Christian doctrines and shows us how understanding them will change how we think about the body. And that, as we'll see, will have far-reaching implications in all sorts of directions, not just with regard to the specific problem at Corinth of sexual immorality. For example, some of us uh, struggle with body image problems. We're told, sometimes overtly, Uh, more often subtly, that the body must conform to some stereotype of beauty uh, set by the big screen or by glossy magazines or by fashion houses. We're told that to be happy, to fit in, to be valuable, you have to look a certain way. And the idolatry of the body has never been more powerful or more prevalent than it is today. And it leaves in its wake a great deal of shame an insecurity of self-loathing and self-blame. Well, Paul's going to show us how the gospel provides a completely different view of the body, and he'll do that by pressing home the implications of five Christian truths. I'm simply going to list them uh, for you, and then we'll pray and read the passage together and sort of consider them as we go. Five truths I want you to be on the lookout for as we work through this passage. First, Paul urges, as most basic of all, the centrality and foundational importance of the glory of God. The body, he says, is for the Lord. So the glory of God, that's number one. Secondly, Paul speaks about the great encouragement we receive by knowing that there will be a bodily resurrection. 
Then third, Paul presents the great doctrine of the believer's union with Christ. Then fourth, he teaches us about the great value of the indwelling of the Spirit of Christ. And then finally, fifth, he drives home the immeasurable worth found in the redemption Christ has accomplished at the cross. It is a virtual summary of basic Christianity. This is practical Christianity 101. Glory of God, bodily resurrection, union with Christ, indwelling Holy Spirit, redemption of Christ. Get these five truths and press them down into your thinking, into your heart, and it's likely that you won't be swept away by the world's damaging ideas about the body ever again. So let's read these verses starting with the second half of verse 13. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and also raises us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? Now, it's hard to remember how we ever managed to get along without our smartphones. But it's true. Once upon a time, we did. Getting from point A to point B without Waze or Google Maps is almost inconceivable now. Back when I started pastoring here, a long time ago, well before smartphones hit the scene, I mean, we didn't even have a GPS uh, back then. I had to navigate using an old-fashioned map book. And I got here, and everyone told me two things. One, you have to update your map book every two years. And two, learn where all the landmarks are so that you can always find your way. And so they told me, here's the landmarks you need to know. The landmarks are the Tyson's Corner Mall, there was only one, which you can't see from the highway anymore. The International Building in Reston, which you can't see from the highway anymore. The Dulles Airport uh, Air Traffic Control Tower, which you can't see from the highway anymore. And the big water tanks that mark Sterling, Ashburn, and Leesburg which you can't see from the highway anymore. So, But if I could see those landmarks, I could find my way back from unfamiliar areas through the vast miles of this county. And you sort of glimpse the landmarks through the buildings and the trees here and there, and uh, you could find your way home. As we look over this passage and these five doctrines that Paul mentions... He doesn't really elaborate them. He doesn't explain them. He doesn't define them. He just mentions them. It's though we merely glimpse them through the buildings. But seeing them, it's though he's saying simply seeing them ought to be enough to help us navigate our way through this whole issue of the body and its proper dignity. And the first of the great landmarks that Paul wants us to navigate by, 
The first truth that he mentions, you see at the end of verse 13, where Paul takes on the Corinthian slogan, food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. Well, to their shock and dismay, Paul says, if that's how we live, you will discover one day that God will destroy both the body and its appetites. But then he offers a true perspective, and here's the first doctrinal principle that reshapes how we think of our body. Our bodies, he says, are for the Lord, for the glory of God. It's right there in verse 13. Now, some of us have a hard time believing that. I think Christianity is intellectual or abstractly spiritual. But Paul insists how we use our hands and our eyes and our mouths matter. God gave us bodies with which to give him glory. We exist as embodied people for the glory of the Lord. We are to present ourselves, our whole selves, to God. Romans 12.1 I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Your body, yes. Your body in all its frailty and its weakness, and all its inadequacy, and all its imperfections, your body is for him. It's actually designed to honor him, and please him, and exalt him, and give him glory. And when the world demands that our bodies conform to a stereotype of beauty, isn't it freeing to remember the correct use of your body is for the honor of God, not the approval of your peers? When our culture says that sexual appetites must be met and to do anything else is oppressive, even self-harming, it's actually the path to freedom to realize that our bodies don't have ultimate claim. Uh, Our appetites don't have ultimate claim on our bodies. But that Jesus does. You have a body in order to glorify him. The second great doctrine that Paul highlights for us is the bodily resurrection. We see that in verse 14. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Our bodies have a destiny, not just our souls. The Christian hope is concrete and physical and solid and embodied. Now, I don't suppose that many of us think about that very often. The God who raised Jesus bodily from the tomb on the third day, did so that he might be the firstborn from among the dead, that where he is, we might be also. That one day, the God who raised Jesus would raise us too. First John 3, 2, what we will be does not yet appear, but we know that we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. One day, our bodies will be the mirror of the resurrection glory of the risen Christ who lives and reigns. The body is not a prison, a mere shell to house the soul. The body has a dignity and a glory given to it by God. Your body, if you're a Christian, is destined for eternity. And so Paul wants us to think about our bodies here and now. If God has decided to so dignify them with an eternal future, glorifying them one day until they mirror the glory of Christ himself, Can we then justify neglecting our bodies, abusing our bodies, indulging them, perverting them? No. 
Because the body, your body, matters to God. And it ought to matter to us too. The glory of God, the resurrection of the body. And then third, verses 15 to 18, Paul highlights the great doctrine of the believer's union with Christ. Look at verse 15. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Let that sink in for a minute. Your bodies are members of Christ. Not just your soul, not just your mind. Your body is united to Christ. That has huge implications. For example, in the Westminster Shorter Catechism, question 37, it's part of our doctrinal standards, uh, find enormous comfort in this truth when it discusses the benefits Believers receive from Christ at death. Listen to this. The souls of believers are at their death made perfect in holiness and do immediately pass into glory. And their bodies being still united to Christ to rest in the grave until the resurrection. You hear that phrase? Your loved ones who have trusted in Christ and gone ahead of you into glory, their bodies resting in the graves today are still united to Christ. It's a permanent, sacred union, enduring, mysterious. And because of their union with Christ, since he rose bodily from the tomb, so will all who are united to him when he returns at the last day. And look at the way Paul traces out the implications of that for this specific situation that the Corinthians are battling. Again, go back to verses 15 through 18. Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Whatever our society tells us, there is no such thing as casual sex. The quotation here is from Genesis 2, verse 24. The two shall become one flesh. It provides the biblical basis for sexual intimacy. It establishes the union of Adam and Eve in the garden as the template for all of us, reminding us that human sexuality is designed by God to forge the most profound bond between one man and one woman for life in the covenant of marriage. Sexual union within marriage, the apostle is teaching us, is the closest earthly parallel to the union that believers have with Jesus Christ through faith. He uses the same verb in verse 17 to describe our connection to Christ that he uses in verse 16 to describe the illicit connection that some Corinthians had with prostitutes. He talks about being joined. As one commentator translates it, glued together. How can a Christian who's glued to Christ join to him body and soul then glibly join himself to a prostitute? How can a Christian join herself to a non-Christian? How can two Christians treat sexual union as a night's disposable entertainment when it has such profound, sacred symbolism and meaning? If you're a Christian, you take Jesus with you into your whole experience of human sexuality. And sexual sin is profoundly dishonoring to Jesus. Look at verse 18. Because you'll see it's also especially defiling to us. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. 
that the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Sexual sin involves our whole selves. It involves our bodies as well as our minds and our hearts and our souls. And as one scholar puts it, because sex is so uniquely body-joining, when we abuse it, it is uniquely body-defiling. We're united to Christ. Our bodies are united to Christ. What we do with them matters profoundly. Now, some people think Ephesians 5, a great passage about marriage. I actually talked about it this past weekend. I did a wedding uh, in St. Louis. And they, they think it's selfishness. It's talking about being selfish. But it's not at all. It's a passage in Ephesians 5. It says, in the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Quoting again from Genesis 2, This mystery is profound. I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Do you see the contrast this gives us? The sexually immoral person sins against his own body. But in marriage, husbands should love their wives and wives should love their husbands as their own body. Biblically, human Sexuality is the primary way that we demonstrate hating ourselves or loving ourselves. It's that important. The glory of God, the resurrection of the body, union with Christ. Fourth, Paul teaches us our bodies are the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. The great doctrine of the indwelling of the Spirit of Christ. Look at verse 19. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? Back in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul spoke uh, to the church as the temple which God dwells by his Spirit. The whole church, the Corinthians all together, Potomac Hills all together, it's the temple of the Holy Spirit. But here he uses that metaphor to speak to each of us individually. And he says that our body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Not just our heart and our soul, but our body. The Spirit of Christ inhabits you, body, as well as heart, soul, and mind. When you become a Christian, that makes our bodies, as it were, sacred space. Is that how you think about your body? Probably not. I think most of us don't think about it that way. We usually think of it as this is a disaster. But if the Spirit of God indwells us, it's sacred space. Shouldn't that change how we behave, what we do with our bodies? And while that's profoundly challenging, think about all the bodily appetites and whether I indulge them or abuse them or distort them, the proneness our bodies have to get hooked on something in an age of rampant uh, substance abuse, uh, where it feels that our bodies are betraying us, It's profoundly challenging, and yet at another level, it's deeply encouraging. Think about it. If Paul were to call us, as the Corinthians were called, to live this new life, this sort of pure and holy life, were to do that without any other resources but our own, we'd be in serious trouble. 
or to engage with conflict with the old life, fighting uh, what the Puritans called besetting sins. Those are the ones that keep coming back. In our own strength, we'd be in big trouble. None of us would have much hope of making progress in the Christian life, but we're not left to our own resources. Rather, the Spirit of Christ dwells in us to give us strength, not just in our heart and minds, but even in our bodies. So often the instruments of sin, that they might instead become the instruments that the Lord uses to bring him glory. He dwells in you, in your body, so that there's hope for you. That you will not be tomorrow who you were yesterday. That you will not be tomorrow who you were yesterday. He is at work in you to will and to do for his good pleasure. So yes, sometimes the battle is fierce. And often we stumble and fall. But because he dwells in us, there is hope. Knowing that he is at work within us in our bodies to change us for his glory. So you have the glory of God, resurrection of the body, union with Christ, indwelling Holy Spirit, and that brings us to the fifth and final doctrine. But this one is so important, I've made it another point. Because when we lose this doctrine, we have to deal with the problem of minimizing Christ. The problem of minimizing Christ. Ed Welch, a wonderful counselor, has a wonderful book called Shame Interrupted, How God Lifts the Pain of Worthlessness and Rejection. And in the book, he tells the story of a 50-year-old man who's been devastated by ongoing repeated sexual immorality. He's now been divorced twice. He's estranged from all three of his children. He's barely surviving on unemployment and with no prospects for another job. He faces thoughts about suicide every morning. His failures are obvious to those who know him. He believes he has no future. And his first thought upon waking up is that suicide would benefit everyone. But then he gets his bearings because he belongs to Jesus now. And his life is no longer his own. And when he looks to the future, he finds it secure in Jesus When he's really conscious of the spiritual, he'll believe it. He'll still have Jesus, so he'll have everything, and that will be plenty. He reminds himself it's the end of the game that counts, not the score after the first half. And so as his feet hit the floor in the morning, he preaches the gospel to himself with these words, verses 19 and 20. You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. And with that, He gets up, he shaves, he gets dressed. He leaves his meager apartment and looks for opportunities to love people and ask about jobs. His present mission and future with Jesus keep him going in a world that reminds him every hour of every day that he doesn't measure up. Some of you are there. Some of you have felt that way may have been a while ago. It may have been this morning. But we need to think of ourselves the way this man has come to as our feet hit the floor. We need to preach the gospel to ourselves with these words, you are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. We are not our own. 
We don't belong to ourselves. We are not free to invent ourselves or redefine ourselves or identify ourselves however we please, however may feel right to us, because we belong to Jesus. He has saved us. He has redeemed us. He has purchased us. For you were bought with a price. The imagery of redemption comes from the slave markets of the ancient world. And Paul is saying that we may boast in our freedom. The truth is, we're slaves to the very thing we think demonstrates our liberty. And sexual sin, in particular, enslaves us. It dominates us. It demeans and dehumanizes us. It objectifies other people and strips them of their dignity. But we who are by nature slaves to sin, when we become Christians, are brought in to a different kind of service. Jesus purchased us with his own blood at the cross. And under his role, we find true freedom. We've been brought into his household. We now live under his mastery. We're not at liberty to live as we please. We're not at liberty to use our bodies as if they were ours to do uh, with as we choose. Christ gave up his liberty for you. Christ was shackled and beaten and crucified for you. Christ paid the ultimate price for you. The wrath of God fell upon him for you. All the guilt of your sin, all the guilt of your sexual sin was paid for in full by him for you. And now, believer in Jesus, you belong to him. Body and soul through and through. You are his. In the words of the Heidelberg Catechism, I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Therefore, Paul says, glorify God with your body. You are his who gave up his body to buy your body back and make you his. Paul is calling us to bend our knee to the lordship of Christ, believing that under his rule we find true freedom. So therefore, glorify God with your body. Human sexuality confronts you and me with our own inability. If we truly examine ourselves in light of God's standard of absolute purity, we would be forced to fall down with none other than the Apostle Paul and cry out, Romans 7, For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. It's when we're confronted with our utter inability to meet the demands of God's standard that we're also confronted with the amazing reality of God's grace. Human sexuality reveals our need of grace. Apart from Christ, it's impossible to redeem yourself in the area of human sexuality. Just as apart from Christ, it's impossible to redeem yourself in the area of human salvation. You can't save yourself. Now or later, because it's all of grace from beginning to end in every area of life. Think about that. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that and then I'll close.
Let's pray together. Our Lord and our God, thank you that you have spoken to us by your Son. Open our eyes that we might see our sin and then see our Savior. Lord, we confess that we fail to pay attention to your word. We trade it for the wisdom of the world, often without even thinking about it. Teach us by your Spirit to listen to the word of God once again. And by it, may you do a powerful work in making us a people who take sin seriously, who love holiness, who mourn over those who won't repent, who come to know, people who know that we've been bought with a price, that I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus. Lord, there's no way one can take a passage of Scripture like this and speak in such a way to be sure that uh, he addresses every need of every heart in the room. But I remember how Jesus could take uh, five loaves and two fishes and multiply them so the whole multitude was fed and there were 12 baskets left over. And so I pray this morning by the work of the Holy Spirit, take your word, multiply it so it speaks to the hearts and the needs of every one of us, since you know our hearts and you know our needs perfectly. And though you have made us saints in union with Christ, we continue to define ourselves by our old life rather than by the new one we have in him. So look for us as a church, we pray, in mercy. Forgive us and work these weeks and months ahead of us through 1 Corinthians. Teach us who we really are in Jesus. Strengthen us as we seek to live these words out for your glory and our good, as we begin to be changed by the gospel. Grant that we can live like people who are called to be saints, united in fellowship, discerning spiritual truths, as spiritual people, building on Christ the solid rock, pursuing holiness as forgiven people, looking to the cross for cleansing, and waking up every morning knowing that we belong to you. And so we ask all these things in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God now and forever. Amen.